Well, my first question is why this topic? So I guess we're going to dive right into it. Why this topic? Well, uh, for Chinese historians, the Cultural Revolution is always a kind of sticking point. It, it, it kind of sticks in our craw. It's uh, because we work with sources and books. And in our minds, the Cultural Revolution, when so many physical objects, artifacts, books, documents, genealogies were destroyed, it's like a horror show. So it looms large in in kind of historians' consideration of modern Chinese history, I think, because not only do we have like, you know, a professional interest in what was going on, but it just feels horrible from the point of view of historians who like to preserve old stuff. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I mean, that's a good reason to to pick this topic and to kind of just expound on it. To be honest with you, when I think of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, my mind does not come automatically to the Chinese revolution. So how how did you make that connection there? The restoration of the gospel and the Chinese revolution were both um, movements where people were trying to build a better world. There was something they didn't like with the older, with the way that things were working. And, um, you know, Joseph Smith uh was like kind of disillusioned by all the different groups fighting with each other. And he said, well, this is kind of weird, you know, what's going on? Um, and, and wanted to kind of talk directly to God. And um, and the people who joined the church, you know, were people who were looking for this new or a better, you know, way of doing things, the accurate, the correct way of doing things. And the same thing with the Chinese Revolution um, in 1911, and there's another one in 2026, and then another one in 1949, you know, things were not going well for a lot of people. And so that fueled this huge revolutionary movement to kind of overthrow the current regime and try to install a new one. But the problem is, the problem with revolution is that they always want to, like, destroy the bad stuff and keep the good stuff. But once you start destroying things, it just gets really destructive. And um, it's hard to kind of just surgically remove the bad stuff and install the good stuff. You talked about previously your apprehension to talk on this topic. Can you expound on that as to yes. why? Okay. So how much do you know about the Cultural Revolution? Not much. Okay. We'll be so honest. Let me give a quick like rundown. So the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976 was this period in Chinese history when um, basically uh, Mao Zedong, the chairman of the party, was in charge of everything. And he was kind of worshipped um, like a god, everyone had like a Mao badge on their chest. Everyone had a Mao portrait on their wall. And Mao called on the people to continue the revolution. He said that in government and uh, even in the communist government, which he had installed for 15 years, there were still like counter-revolutionary elements. So this kind of gave carte blanche to people, including like young teenage punks, to just attack everyone, basically everyone accusing them of being counter-revolutionary. And this led to mob violence. This led to destruction of priceless um, historical artifacts because, um, you know, if you, if you had an old book, let's say you had a book of, um, like a really old book of Buddhism, like the Buddhist canon, um, you know, very important part of Chinese culture. But it would, if you had it, and the, the Red Guards, uh, the, the teenage punks, came to your house and found the Buddhist canon, they'd be like, oh, you've got a book of feudal superstition. This means that you are not revolutionary. This means that you don't support Chairman Mao. You want the old society to come back. And they would, you know, burn the book. They would beat you up. Um, they would destroy your property. 
So it was a really chaotic time in which no one was safe from anything. And um, if you were labeled the wrong way, there was very little you could do to protect yourself. So the reason why I have trepidation is um, I am going to suggest that uh, in our society today in the United States and in societies all over the world, actually, uh, we can find similar elements that existed during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, so, so I'd like to issue a kind of voice of warning. You know, the elements are there and we don't want to go down this road because it leads to a really bad place. Um, but I'm a little worried that people are going to say, you know, Melissa Inouye came to BYU-Idaho and accused us all of being communists. Like, that's not what I'm doing. But, yes. I, so your talk is, or your speech is titled Restoration versus Revolution, What China, China's culture, uh, Cultural Revolution Can Teach Us in a Time of Civil Polarization. And I'm in the same boat as you. I, you know, working at a radio station, I know and I can see the world kind of getting more divisive and polarized. And it's really, it's really scary. What can BYU-Idaho students and residents of the greater United States and the world, really, what can we do on a daily basis, the small and simple things, to kind of loosen this tension? That's a great question. I thought about this a little bit. The most obvious thing, I think, is to make sure that you have friends who are, like, on the opposite political side from you. Um, if you're only friends, well, you're like on Facebook or whatever, with people who are just like you, then it can be easy to be like, oh, there's like crazy blah, blah, blahs out there. You know, they're so horrible. They should just disappear and then everything will be better. But um, that's not how it works. That's like that. That's not how democracy works. It's like a super complicated, very messy and efficient process where, you know, the rights of minorities have to be protected. And the really cool thing about the restoration is that we have this tradition of being a pretty persecuted minority group. So when you, um, like, in Joseph Smith's letter from Liberty Jail, March 22nd, 1839, uh, or maybe the one I think is March 20th, 1839, he's talking about um, how frustrated and angry he is about the mobs, you know, who just totally ignored the law, and about the officials who totally didn't enforce the law, you know, and just let, let the mobs run rampant. Um, and he said, you know, we still, like, have hope um, in the Constitution, you know, um, even though we're kind of being, our rights are being trampled upon. You know, we, we have hope in that. And so it's really interesting. So on the one hand, we, the Latter-day Saints, have the experience of being a persecuted minority, um, the victims of mob violence. And, um, and Joseph Smith uh, also was, because, maybe because of that, was extremely kind of open and inclusive in his approach to other religious groups. So like... Um, the Nauvoo City Council Charter said, you know, all religions are welcome here. You know, the Quakers, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Mohammedans, they meant Muslims. Now, why did they say Mohammedans? Like in Western America at that time, there were probably a lot of, you know, Methodists and Baptists running around, but there probably weren't a lot of Muslims. But they mentioned it, I think, just to kind of make it really clear, you know, doesn't matter who you are, even if you're what we consider the most weird, you know, different religious group, you're still welcome here. Um, and I think they were trying to do unto the Muslims the way that they wished the Methodists would do unto them as a tiny religious. You were born in California, but you're of Chinese descent. And so my question, as you devoted quite a great deal of your time 
to researching the Restoration and the, the Chinese revolutions and Chinese history, did you feel a connection, more of a personal relationship as you went through that with Joseph Smith and the other Restoration leaders and maybe with your ancestors? Mm, that's a great question. So my great-grandfather, who was the one who left China, left at the beginning of the, ni- of the 20th century. So they weren't there for all of this. Um, his sisters and brothers and, you know, cousins were there. I went to the old family house once, and um, it was mostly empty. But upstairs in the upper room, there was like a, like a closet, kind of like a dresser. And on the side of the dresser were scrawled a bunch of Cultural Revolution slogans. And I thought, wow, like, you know, my family went through this. Time. There's also a woman in my ward who's Chinese, whom I quote in this talk. Um, and she said, you know, she suffered so much during the Cultural Revolution. She was struggled against. She was sent down to the countryside to work and do hard labor on Hainan Island on a banana farm for 10 years. But she says, you know, once you've been through that, everything else in life has been easy. Nothing is an issue. So you got to see, as you went to the family home, the first hand almost, second hand, I guess, the the way that the Cultural Revolution impacted your family. Can you tell me about the feelings, maybe, a little bit more of the feelings that you felt as you saw that, as you were at your family home? Well, it just makes you think how, at that time, politics permeated every aspect of daily life. They could not escape politics. You know, why Why would they write on the side of a dresser, you know, learn from Daqing, which is this, um, like, model village somewhere, like a communist production site. Um, that's like a pretty intimate place to write a political slogan, like on your dresser. So it just makes me realize that, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, nobody was kind of safe or insulated. You just, you were part of this huge kind of political wave. And if you didn't, go along with it, you you could have serious consequences, which is which is the problem, you know, of all big social movements that people get caught up in. Like, for example, um, you know, in World War II Germany, you know, people getting caught up in this anti-Semitic sentiment or, um, or the mobs, you know, against the Latter-day Saints in Missouri, people just kind of otherwise good, nice people, you know, getting, getting caught up in joining these mobs. I mean... And you can kind of see the same thing happening. Uh, <laughs> trepidation. You can kind of see the same thing happening in the U.S. today. There are intense pressures, and there's intense like public scrutiny in a way that hasn't existed before. You know, with with Twitter and with like the kind of twenty four hour news cycle, and you know, the internet and um, kind of really specific news stations that specialize in like you know, hating on this other group of people, whatever it is. You know, that's that's uh, pretty sobering. And it creates less safety for us. And it creates, uh, it, it destroys our refuges as human beings. And I hate to see that happen, it's, you know. Like, there's no reason why we should try to destroy each other online or in person, you know. But we have seen an actual uptick in violence, you know, in the country, Um Members of Congress, for example, political officials have received way more like death threats than than they used to. Like I think it's like a tenfold increase. 
so that's pretty concerning for me because that that goes along these lines of um, what happened in the Cultural Revolution. For those who are still worried about coming out and to and making their voices heard about this topic, what advice would you give to them about kind of getting over that that obstacle of wanting to be more vocal and and trying to help the country? Right. Well, like, like you say, it's great to try to help the country. It's great to be vocal. It's just, it's just that we can't rely on the kind of cultural revolution esque use of like labels, you know, to like dismiss people. You know, if you if you la- if you give slap the right label on someone, you know, nowadays it means that person's a total. You know, that, no one cares about that person. You know, they're gone. They're irrelevant. They've like ruined themselves. You know, like we just don't give anyone. We just, yeah, once you've kind of slapped a label on someone, like, that's the label that sticks. But that's that's not how people actually are. You know, people are complicated. People are nuanced. People have depth to them. So I think one, one thing that we can do is um, President Oaks has called on us to, on the Latter-day Saints, to moderate and unify. So maybe our job can be, like, whatever political party or whatever community group or whatever, you know, school board thingy, we belong to, we can just make sure that the means, the methods and the procedures by which people are going about trying to change things are, um, are, are civil and moderate and unifying. So for example, we wouldn't like call specific people out on social media and like, you know, attack them personally and tell people to go to their house and protest, you know, that's, that's like not helpful. Um, and it takes things out of the civic space and puts them into the personal space, which is what happened during the Cultural Revolution. You know, the Red Guards would invade people's homes. And, and that was the that was a tragedy is that, you know, the home became politicized. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great thing about, you know, democracy is that there is this civic space where all ideas kind of come together. But in theory, we still like, you know, are allowed to be ourselves and like have our own lives and stuff. Um, but as we erode that, that separation um, between the civic space and the personal space and attack people personally, um, then we're really, we're really starting to look like uh, the mob violence of the cultural revolution. So when all is said and done and you've given your talk and you walk away and people walk away from your forum talk, what do you hope they take away with them? Okay. Well, this is my idea, um, which I hope they take away with them. So I think we have this idea sometimes like as Latter-day Saints because we're really proud of our theology and like, it's so unique and, you know, Joseph Smith, like, revealed so many cool things. Um, I think sometimes we have ide- this idea that, like, being on Team Jesus means that we're, like, the awesomest and we destroy all the enemies, right? But what if being on Team Jesus means being a good teammate to all of Jesus's team members and like who's on jesus's team like everyone's on jesus's team so do we want to like be those like downer teammates who are like causing rancor and dissent within the ranks of the team you know dragging everyone down or do we want to be the people who build everyone up and like work with everyone's different strengths and you know do that i mean I think that's I think that's probably what it means um, to be on Jesus's team is to love Jesus's teammates, which is not the same thing as crushing the opposition. 
<laughs> yeah, I think Jesus cares way more about how we treat people than about what political ends we achieve. In closing, could you just share your testimony with us? Not only the restoration, maybe, but just in general. Yeah, well, the thing about being a historian is you see stuff that people do in all sorts of different places. And that gives you a sense of, that gives you a sense of truth. You know, what rings true for, like, the children of God. And when you study the Cultural Revolution, you see that it didn't happen because it was China. It happened just because people got it was because people kind of succumbed to these various pressures that were that were pushing in on them and i think um what i know the most about the from what the restored gospel teaches us which i think is absolutely true and one of the great kind of truths that joseph smith like brought back into the world is that you know life is supposed to be really hard and the struggle that we feel um when we come up with people who have different opinions from ours is part of the plan of salvation. Like, things are supposed to be difficult. We're, we're supposed to kind of have this abrasion between us and other people. So instead of trying to kind of eliminate the struggle by destroying the people who are different from us, we need to kind of do what Christ showed us how to do. And um, I just know that that's the way to follow Jesus. And... And that Jesus really cares about how we treat each other. That's like the major thing. And I think the blessing of the restoration is that we have this framework of struggle being sacred and being something that edifies and consecrates and refines us. And if we just lean into that a little bit more, uh, embrace the difficulty inherent in life and in human interactions, then we'll be able to really follow Christ because that's what he did. You know, Jesus didn't have an easy life. You can always see Jesus wandering into really sticky situations on purpose. Yeah, so I think that's what it means to follow Christ and uh, it's hard, but but I know that we we can do it 